When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. I want to come with you. I give the orders then. ever done it before. What have we done to ourselves? Playing with us. Playing a game. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. Also back with me this week is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. This week we are looking at the 1970 film from director Joseph Losey, Figures in a Landscape. Based on the book by Barry England, it was adapted by and stars Robert Shaw as McConaughey. And Malcolm McDowell as Ansel. No first names are given. There are two men on the run from... Someone or something, that's kind of one of the fun things about this movie and the book. And if you're concerned that we'll be ruining both of those things for you, if you've not experienced either, just turn off the podcast and come on back after you've read it, watched the movie, all that kind of stuff. We will still be here. Colin, when was the first time you saw Figures in a Landscape, and what did you think? I first found out about it when Kino Lorber... um, put out their studio classics DVD and Blu-ray 
couple years ago, I came across it on their website. I had never heard of it before. I went ahead and ordered it and was stunned. It's a very bizarre movie, totally up my alley, had completely escaped my vision. And Heather, I think this was the first time watch for you. It was. Um, and it's funny because I had I'd heard about the film for years, dating back to the early 90s when I became um, a big fan of Malcolm McDowell's work uh, when I saw the movie If. Like I'd rented If, the Lindsay Anderson film for my local video store and was just immediately, oh, my God, Malcolm McDowell. And so I immediately you know, researched the filmography. And this you know, was the second film he did, I believe. I think he had a, a part that was in Poor Cow that was cut out. But as far as like feature roles, this was a second film. Uh, but I could never find it. Like I, I looked for it, and it was a really hard film to find, for me at least, until um, the Kino Lorber release, which, oh, my goodness. I mean, I think we all know Kino Lorber do usually just fantastic jobs with their releases, and this is no exception. My impression was it wasn't what I expected, but I don't always mind that. Uh, I do love the fact that like it has this sort of pastoral title, and the book – obviously the book does too. And there's something so great about a, a pastoral title that sounds like something of a painting, and yet you dive into the work, and it's it's not that. But it is that at the same time. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I had heard about this movie for a long time. This was one of those movies that was kind of a – a holy grail for some people and it was finally available on like the gray market bootleg sites for a while and then when kino lorber put put it out in this really beautiful uh edition i still didn't watch it like i'd had this is one of those where i'd had it on vhs for years and years and i was just like okay i've got it on the shelf eventually i'll watch this because it sounds fairly fascinating malcolm mcdowell robert shaw Versus a helicopter. Okay, great. This was a first time watch for me. This is one of those where I was making myself watch this in order to do the podcast on it. And there are some movies like that where I just kind of say, all right, White, it's time to buckle down and watch this movie that you've had on the shelf for all of these years. And now's the time to do it. And I'm glad I did. I read the book for this and I watched the movie a couple times and I'm pretty impressed with stuff though. I don't know. I, I think I got more out of reading the book and watching it rather than just watching it on its own. So I have a, a thought experiment. I have a question for you, Heather, because I don't think that you read the book and I want to know who are these guys and what are they on the run from? Well, actually I, I have read part of the book. Okay, good. <laughs> so I can't, so I have failed the experiment already. Um, my impression, but I think I would have got, I would have gathered the same impression from the movie, maybe not as strongly as I did from the book, but I pretty much was under the assumption that they are, they're escaping from a POW camp, especially like within the movie, you know, late, you know, clearly, okay, they're British, they're in a foreign land and there's references to the being in the military. So if they're escaping from something and where they're bound up, they're, you know, their hands are tied to me that they're prisoners of war. I had no clue. And I absolutely loved that sort of ambiguity. I think I've now seen the movie three and a half times. And I, every time their characters change a little bit for me, I sort of love not knowing, you know, are they 
completely innocent? Did they do something wrong? Are they prisoners of war? Why are they being pursued? And I think especially on a first viewing, not knowing what they're capable of gives it a you know an element of like mystery and anticipation. Two months ago, I watched Escape from Devil's Island, the movie with Jim Brown. And so for whatever reason, I kind of had that on the brain when I was watching this, though I would say the book feels more ambiguous than the movie. Like it feels like there's a lot more information given in the movie than there is in the book. Like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't necessarily make a lot of chit chat in the book. They seem to be very determined to get to wherever they're going, though they don't even really have a clear destination in mind. So they don't, you don't really learn very much about these guys in the book and you learn more about them in the movie. And I'm not necessarily sure. I like that. We learn more about them. I kind of like what you're saying, Cullen is that I don't know who these guys are. I don't know who they're on the run from. They're just on the run. And I kind of like that. We start in media res that we don't see them actually escaping though. That is part of the book and that is part of the criticism of the movie is that we don't see them with their initial escape but i kind of like that we pick up while the story's already going and especially that we kind of are searching for them ourselves watching that opening and we finally come across them and get to see them in this huge landscape the way that they're dwarfed in this landscape and i almost wish i didn't know as much about them as I do at the end of the movie, which is a weird thing. That's a weird complaint, right? I know what you mean, Mike. It's a very contradictory movie. And that's one of the things that makes it fascinating for me. You spend all this time with two characters and yet you don't know them, but you're watching their every move. And I mean, it even extends to the aesthetics, you know, it's, you know, the volume goes from very quiet to very loud. Shots are big and small. It's almost a purely action-based film, and yet nothing happens. All those sorts of contradictions, that's what brings me back to the movie time and again. One of the things I actually, I really dug about this movie was that the way that it's handled, right, you know, from the pacing to the ambiguity to just everything about it is so markedly different than I think from from what people would expect from a film that might be presented as a typical action film. Because in a way, it is definitely an action film, but in a way, it's not either. Like, it's really its own beast, which is so cool. The way that the visuals are presented, because, like, the cinematography, oh, my, you know, my God, it's breathtaking. Like, it's absolutely, the landscape is a character in this film. I mean, it's literally, it's it's almost the way visually it's presented. It's, it's the title is literal in every ounce of the word and every sense of the word here. Um to the point where it's almost, you know, there's a lot of great aerial shots where it's like, you know, our two title characters, you know, at various points are just these little running dots, almost like they're ants, which is kind of seems to be a comment, I think, on the human condition. There's a lot of really great sort of cynicism about our own humanity, I think, in, in the film. And, and from what I've read in the book, I picked up on that in there, too, though I haven't finished it. So, Mike, you, you definitely have a better insight on that than I do. I don't know about that. I mean, because there were articles that I read, criticisms that I read, where it felt like people were getting a lot more out of the book than I was. And I don't know if that was just me being obtuse or something, but I was like, oh, I 
didn't pick up that these guys were POWs from the book at all. So I don't know if that's just people bringing that to the material or maybe seeing the movie and then reading the book, because I can see watching the movie that, yeah, there's a lot of talk about soldiering and the guys that they're on the run from and that they are running to are wearing uniforms. So the whole idea of them being POWs really makes a lot of sense. But then I'm also trying to pick the year and you know we know and kind of one of the nice things about this movie is that you're there and you're searching for answers the entire time and picking up more each time that you watch this movie so that you know you're 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 glomming onto those just little pieces that they're throwing out like when malcolm mcdowell's character talks about where he used to work and talking about how he was working at this department store and the norwegians and swedish girls used to come in and he would try to pick up on them and when uh they start talking about the pill so i'm like okay well the pill that puts it in if they're post pill then it's post this year and i'll I'll try to piece these things together and then i'm like well they're both british so what war is going on and what would fit this landscape because the landscape is oh my god it is absolutely gorgeous and they shot this all in spain and any fan of spaghetti westerns will tell you that spain has so many different looking places and this is no exception there are so many beautiful vistas and mountains and all of these things going on so you can't really place exactly where it is either so again i'm searching for answers every single time i watch this and sometimes i think they're giving me something and other times i think that they're kind of obfuscating a little bit like what's the whole story with robert shaw and his wife you know what is going on there so it's it's interesting reveal and withhold approach to the information not about y'all but first time i watched it it almost felt like a sci-fi movie in some ways that they could be on another planet. And it just has this, like the landscape has this like alien nature to it. It seems to like morph and shift. There don't seem to be any sort of boundaries. When you never really hear the people that they're running from or even the villagers speak. So you don't know what type of language they would be speaking. Those scenes later on in the movie, um, when the those who are in pursuit sort of like come up over the horizon and they have these like weird hoods on you never see exactly who it is that's pursuing them they could be sort of and you see the pilot and so you know it's sort of a human but you don't really see beneath the the helmet yeah and to see that so many people are wearing goggles and so it makes them look like an insect and then the helicopter that they're on the run from also feels more like an insect or i know it's kind of equated to a bird of prey because we cut at one point at the beginning from the helicopter to what like a falcon or some sort of raptor and then back to the helicopter so it's like okay yeah i'm I'm getting the message that you're trying to send me that this is animalistic representation of what this thing is on top of that it's almost like the helicopter you know because there's a lot of cat and mouse with at one point you know the the two trying to kind of turn the game on the helicopter, which only has kind of like middling results, but it's you know something that just hit me with you saying that, Mike, because there's a scene early on where they find they stumble upon like this goat herder, you know, and you see these shots of like the goats running, and even in the beginning of the film, like there's these great aerial shots of the animals running, and 
it's like that's pretty much almost a mirror image to what we see later on of the shot of like McDowell and Shaw running. It's like we're all animals. One that McDowell even does this thing that I've seen in nature documentaries where the bird will affect that its wing is broken and trying to lure the predator away from the nest where the babies are and like, oh, I can't fly, I can't fly. And then once the predator gets close enough, it can you know, miraculously fly away and leaves the predator completely baffled. I think that was in Animals Are Beautiful People. And he's doing almost the exact same thing when he's trying to get the helicopter to a good position for Robert Shaw to shoot at it. And he's just like, oh, my leg, my leg. And I was like, oh, okay, that's it. This is really going right there, going right towards a nature documentary. When there's the other animals, there's the pig that gets shot in the corn or whatever those plants are when it runs out. And there's the snake that he finds when he's crawling around. He's so happy about that snake. <laughs> if anybody has their doubts about this movie, and I mean, it's, you know, there are some issues I had with it, but it is definitely worth checking out. And I mean, seriously, you get to see Robert Shaw crawling through a field on fire, wielding a snake and laughing and cackling. Mm-hmm. Well, wielding the snake and yelling at his enemies. I mean, that alone, that could be your trailer. Like, I literally, I think in my notes wrote, what? <laughs> the times seemed to call him out and said he was over the top. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe, but amazingly over the top in that scene. Uh, I mean, it's Robert Shaw. I mean, that guy being over the top is kind of like, you're welcome. You know, like he's he's great. He's Robert Shaw. You can, and I honestly, I love his dynamic with McDowell on this because yeah, Shaw is kind of it's some in some ways, yeah, he's I, I didn't think he was over the top, I thought he was more theatrical. And but I actually thought because this thing, these two characters, you know, in the book and especially in the film, you have the older guy and the younger guy, and there's obviously like a dynamic where the older guy views, you know, Shaw views Ansel as this sort of like weak, spoiled boy, which he's clearly not. He's clever and yeah, he's in the shitter along with him. But their dynamic was so cool because Shaw is this more grizzled and he's more of a theatrical kind of actor in some ways. Not in a hammy way, but it's just, you know, more of his background. And whereas McDowell to me was more natural, like he's more of a naturalistic actor, but equally intense. And he can and he can easily bring up his volume too if he needs to and just I don't know, seeing those two kind of play off of each other, to me that was one of my favorite things about this film. I agree totally, and that's one of the things that deepens on multiple viewings for me is watching the subtle ways that their characters interact and in some ways you know when we get more into the plot we can talk about them but there are moments between the two of them that on first viewing seemed one way but on second and third viewings kind of shifted dramatically for me at least in terms of the power struggle like the power struggle between the two of them and each other It would be easy to just place them into two columns and say that Shaw is the muscle and McDowell is the brains, because that's not necessarily true. There's not necessarily that line of demarcation. We get quite a few times where that's the case, but... They're not joined together like Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier or, you know, black mama, white mama kind of thing. They're not chained together. They have to be figuratively chained together because they complement one another. There's a moment where it feels like they're going to part. And that's where we do get the moment of you might have the cans of food, but I'm the one that was smart enough to bring the can opener. So it does 
you know, they complement each other in that way. I don't think that we necessarily get them wanting to split up in the book. I think that they're always in it for the long haul, but they do make a good team and they, they will switch positions occasionally where one is the smarter one. But I think it's nice too, that Shaw's character really relies on McDowell's character, even though he does berate him quite a few times. One of the first times we hear him talking to him, he's like, Oh, you were you know, born with a bottle and just like how weak he is and all this kind of stuff. And then later on in the movie, it's like, well, what are we going to do? You know, think this thing out and try to come up with a solution to how we're going to get out of this situation. If another person and another writer had handled this film, it would have been so easy to have it be almost, I don't want to say like a buddy cop (laughs) movie, but, you know, just almost like, oh, here's the crazy one and here's the, you know, whatever. And instead, both of them have enough weaknesses and strengths to make it interesting. Because, I mean, I loved how at one point, like Shaw's character actually says, you know, I'm stupid sometimes. You know, like he's actually for this guy that has all this bravado and, you know, masculine, you know, not necessarily machismo, but definitely a lot of um, macho gumption for him to admit that pretty, you know, it was like, wow, okay, that's, you know, a character that has that kind of self insight to themselves. That's depth that shows some some layers going on. Ansel is you know, physically not as strong as him, but so mentally strong. But I mean, they both physically survive a pretty harrowing trek across the landscape without you know losing a limb that's impressive to me i don't know <laughs> i don't even like going camping i would be the one uh if margaret shaw would be yelling and berating <laughs> i was born i was born with the bottle one of the early scenes that we have is shaw or mac killing that goat herder that you mentioned earlier and there he's trying to get a knife because as we see them in the original in the opening they're running with their hands tied behind their back and i have to say i was very impressed because there were a lot of times where it looked like these guys were actually doing their own stunts especially that first time where they're running and they kind of jump off of this i won't call it a cliff but it's a very high hill and it's almost a straight jump down and they're running with their hands behind their back and that i swear it looks like those two guys are actually the ones doing this and not stunt doubles and i i'm sure they were actually before we get to the scene the 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 murder scene you're talking about there's a really strange moment of affection between the two of them that didn't jump out at me the first time but on rewatching, i think it's really fascinating ansel's trying to untie the ropes behind his back and he falls and it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VTW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And then Matt kind of goes down on the ground and like puts his shoulder under Ansel's chin. And he's like, and Ansel's using his chin on Matt's chest. And it's like this weird, like hug, this embrace between the two of them that's unexpectedly tender. And then Max says, you know, we have to keep going. Which is kind of like this almost like, I don't know, fatherly, brotherly, like, you know, it's a really fond moment. And then Ansel says something along the lines of, yeah, when I need your help, I'll ask for it. And almost kind of pushes him away. Yeah, there is a real father-son dynamic. There's quite a few times where Mac comes out and says, like, I'm glad that you're not dating my daughter. You know, it's just my daughters because he, you know, he's afraid that. Ansel would be the guy who's trying to pick up on his daughters. And he's very much of that generation. You know, he's always talking about his wife. He's talking about his daughters. Whereas Ansel, you know, he, he pretty much is calling him out as being a virgin, being really young, super inexperienced, all of those things. So really putting him quite a few years junior. And he, he might not be that much junior age wise, but he definitely uh, is treated like he is a kid. In Max's defense, I don't think it helped that Ansel's response was, you know, why not? I'm a good teacher. <laughs> Something every father, I'm sure, wants to <laughs> wants to hear from his daughter's suitor. You know, I'm, I'm a good teacher, you know, and it's you know, and it's Malcolm McDowell saying that, which is just tremendous. It's, it's so good, but yeah, but you know, at that. That exchange is so cool because it reveals just how, you know, Mac has no problems with killing. I'm not saying it's his favorite thing. He has a, he has a much easier time with it than Ansel does. But yet when it comes to sex, he's, obvi- he's obviously like, you know, like, oh, the pill, like the pill was the, one of the worst things to happen. And, you know, he's very, very old, old guard. He gets mad at Ansel for not helping out with that killing. And I don't know how much of that is him getting mad at Ansel for not helping him kill the goat herder or how much of it is that he went to all that trouble to kill the goat herder and the goat herder didn't have a knife. I imagine a mix. That thing kind of took me aback because in the book they kill like their first kill is like somebody that's trying to catch them and they do kill him and it's brutal. Like that's actually, I thought that was a really, in the book it's a really powerfully written scene and it's the violence is just ugly and crunchy and successful, but it's like, I mean, they have to drag the corpse, but they do get a knife and they get free pretty quickly. So that, I think when I watched the movie, because I'd read part of the book before I saw the movie, that took me aback. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's completely gone. But, you know, if you're going for the ambiguity route, it, you know, it's kind of, it makes more sense. I like the decision that Losey made in, or in Robert Shaw, who adapted the novel, to make that first killing not provide the knife it gives this like really chilling futility to it instead of having you know i killed the you know the herder but it was all for the greater good so now we can escape it was useful it's justified we can move on it's like the first death in the movie all of a sudden you're questioning these characters it's like do they need to be killing these people was there another way what do we think about them as protagonists do we like these people I, I, I thought it was really smart of Lozi and Shaw to start posing those questions right away. Well, and that they're killing an innocent bystander. There's a real demarcation between who are the soldiers and who are the village people. And in the novel, 
they indicate that, uh, if I remember correctly, that he's a civilian, but he's on the side of the goons, which I believe is that's the word the Barry England uses. So he's not just a civilian. You know that he's on the bad side. Right. There was a detail, though, in that scene that I adored in the book where Ansel finds like a chicken beak. It's like a good it's indicated to be like some kind of good luck symbol, which, again, kind of that actually throws some ambiguity. I'm like, where where are they? Like what I'm, you know, like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm like, what culture would a chicken beak be a good luck? I'm sure there's one that exists. I just I w- I'm not sure what it is personally. But um, but there's this whole thing of like wanting to, you know, leave this poor bastard that they ended up killing with back with a chicken beak. But uh, so I was sad there was no chicken beak here. Obviously, the aim of what the film is going for and what the book are, are is a bit different. But that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, they, if the end result's good, that's ultimately what matters. I like both. And I think they go their own separate ways. And I, I'm okay with film adaptations, you know, that have their own perspective on the book. When you go from page to screen, you don't get accents necessarily, unless you're writing like, you know, dialect, you don't get accents from people so that we have Shaw and McDowell. Now that suddenly makes these guys British. And it's interesting too, you were talking, you know, that they use the word goon. That is very close to gook, right? Which 1968, when this movie, when this book was written, you know, we were in the, the heat of Vietnam, but it was interesting that he went with goon and not gook because it's a, you know, goon was an older word and it doesn't necessarily speak to any sort of, as far as I know, race or anything like that. So it kind of makes that ambiguous as well. And then as soon as you have to see what people look like, then you start to uh, associate them with a race, a class, a country, something like that. Though he, uh, Losi does a good job of obfuscating that with the, the full head gear. You know, we get some shots of the villagers that we get that, that crazy shot of the one woman villager, the widower, uh, or sorry, the widow, when they go into the village in subsequent scenes, and the way that she's made up, like, I thought she was a ghost at first. And, and really, I didn't even know for sure what I was seeing the first time I watched this, because they're wandering around inside of this house, and I'm like, there's somebody there. Do they not see this person there? Is she really not there? And the way that her face is so pale, I was like, is that a ghost? What is going on with this? And it's interesting that she doesn't even react to anything until uh, Robert Shaw, Mac, reaches over and tries to take this bread that was on the dead body, like a tribute to the dead body, and that's when she finally reacts. It's like that bridge too far. And that's one of the few times where you really get Ansel berating Mac because he took it too far. You know, he shouldn't have done that. He could have had everything else in that house pretty much other than the stuff that was on the dead body. The first time I saw that, I was I was like, I was almost like, is she a dead body too? You know, I totally seriously thought the ghost thing because it was just, it. She's lit so eerie. I mean, the lighting, God, the lighting in this movie is just visually. This is such a perfect movie. It's it's so it's so good. But that shot of her, I was like, what is what is going on? And then she and she's okay. She's she's a living person. All right. That bread did look good. But the, the whole scenario is so surreal, too, because just, you know, there's this dead body laying out. And here's this, you know, this 
this widow because she doesn't look like she's grieving. She looks like she's just like stunned into paralysis almost until she screams. Well, there's those other surreal moments. I mean, just the that we can't see the soldiers' faces is kind of surreal, and that the you know I talked about how the soldiers at the end look like insects, but the uh, uh, that weird moment after they have their first encounter with the chopper, where Robert Shaw starts talking about the chopper, what would have happened if it had cut his head off, and then he'd be like playing soccer with his own head, and he just doesn't let it go. He keeps like he just keeps adding on to that story to the point where he keeps talking about it, like it drops for a second, and then he picks it back up. And I was like, is he still talking about? kicking his own head that brings up one of my favorite lines in the movie and it's actually referencing where ansel's berating him and he's, he keeps calling him a pig and then he actually tells him you should have your head cut your head off put it in a bucket of vinegar and send it off to a museum yeah there's a real decapitation theme going on here so it's just so specific like, it's such a great like that's a, that is a specific insult and i don't know if there's anything to this when they're they one of the things they escape from the village with is a razor a straight razor and they're talking about shaving and i i can't remember i think mac is talking about his wife and then immediately switches topic to shaving all over the body like doing a little bit of manscaping that ansel (laughs) should really think about that in order to escape the rot and i was just like oh okay so we're going to talk about your wife and then we're going to talk about ansel's crotch okay all right good but the funniest part of that was that rex reed in his review didn't seem to understand what the rot was and i was like really you you didn't get that rex uh he's terrible (laughs) (laughs) the only thing good he ever did was be in Myra Breckenridge and that movie is terrible but it's amazing at the same time this movie is great for having so many little scenes that you're like whoa okay that's a decision you know like I like it that's a good decision but it it keeps you on your toes yeah because I was like because when he first said that I was like is he talking about his pubic area and then he keeps talking like oh okay yeah well you got it I got it Colin got it Rex didn't get it I just looked up on my phone Apparently, goon was uh, a slang for German Stalag guards for American POWs during World War II. So maybe that was something that Barry England was referencing by using that term to reinforce the POW thing. Wasn't that the island that the Sea Hag was from, from uh, the old uh, Popeye cartoons and comic strips? Ooh, I don't like the looks of this place at all, huh? The sailors is too clean to here to suit me. That's all I got to say. Huh? I wish the old man could have got lost someplace else besides here. Wow! Goon Island, humans keep on. I wonder if they mean me. I want to pause for a second and talk about how much I love the music in this movie. Because we've talked about the cinematography and the acting. But I have to say that the music is right up there with one of the most important things in this movie. And I looked high and low for a score for it, but couldn't locate a CD of it. It reminded me a lot of like Jerry Goldsmith to the point where when they're walking, I expected 
like three astronauts who just faked a Mars landing to be walking the other way. You know, they really has like a good goldsmith. And that's a major compliment for me, a good goldsmith vibe to it. And the way that the music, you know, you talked about how we go from large vistas down to small details back out to large vistas. And that music is right there with you as far as loud, quiet, loud. It's almost like a Pixies kind of vibe, you know, and it just really such a powerful thing and the sound design itself you know and that was one of the things i liked the most about the helicopter is that there's a lot of times where you don't hear the helicopter at all until it's right there on you this is not the beginning of mash this isn't like radar isn't there saying oh choppers are coming you know you don't hear the chopper at all until it's on top of you until it's already too late as they would say richard rodney bennett i i had heard i knew of before um because he did a murder on the orient express what I'm wondering is, when did film scores that are this modernist and atonal start to be used? Well, the first one I can think of, and this is probably because of my limited knowledge, is just two years prior with Planet of the Apes, another Jerry Goldsmith score. But yeah, I think like in Goldsmith, to me, always seems to speak to musically to Bella Bartok and some of those atonal composers. And I can't remember when Bartok was popular, but yeah, those that it is very atonal doesn't have we're not like whistling the theme from figures in a landscape when we leave the theater at the end of the day and it's not like the bridge over the river quiet theme you're not going to get a scene in the breakfast club where they're suddenly whistling figures in a landscape main theme that movie would have been so good speaking of songs though um this is a bit out of order but show me the way to go home i'm tired and i want to go to bed that was used in jaws is in the original novel of Figures in a Landscape. And I was so surprised when I saw it, because when you open up the book, it's like the copyright, show me the way to go home is copyright so-and-so. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I was waiting the whole book for that to come up. And I'm wondering, did Robert Shaw, like on the set of Jaws, just suddenly remember this novel and a song that he took out of his script? Let's add it to Jaws. He was like Tarantino with that Ezekiel 2517, where he's just like, well, I'm going to try to have it in Dust Till Dawn. No, no, let's try it over here, too. Yeah, that cracked me up. And there were so many times. I mean, I can't watch Robert Shaw in anything. You know, the luck of ginger coffee, nothing. I can't watch Robert Shaw without thinking of Quint. And the times where he has that cackle, like you're talking about, Heather, I'm thinking, you know, oh, the the taxidermy man, he's going to have a heart attack when he sees what I brought him. Like all of those lines. And then at the end, in spoilers, but at the end when he's fighting the helicopter, I'm just thinking of, when Jaws comes up on the boat and starts taking him away. And I'm just like, yep, the, here he goes again. Quint has to go down with the ship. Totally. <laughs> I have the same thoughts. Well, you know, there's another sort of cult film tie. Uh, and that is the two guys that play the helicopters have a tie to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because the pilot is Henry Wolf, who is one of the Transylvanians. And I believe the photographer that you see uh, in the beginning of Rocky Horror that's at uh, Brad at the wedding that Brad and Janet are attending. And the observer is Christopher Malcolm, who was in shock treatment, the not a sequel, not a prequel, but an equal to Rocky Horror, uh, and also played Brad in the uh, in a London stage version of Rocky Horror. Wow, look at you. I love my Rocky Horror slash shock treatment. <laughs> Mike, you're the one who showed me shock treatment. 
I hope that we're still friends. We are. I love shock treatment. I will. I will defend that movie till I die. Till I. Till I'm. I'll wield a snake at people in a field on fire about it. Like Robert Shaw. Half the time you see his character, you see Mac. He's very like he's the stoic, strong jawed. Just like, come on, boy, you know, like, we got to kill people. We're going to do this. We're, I'm a manly man. But then all of a sudden, it's like he goes loony and he starts cackling and you're like, whoa, what is, <laughs> you know, you don't know if it's like maybe just a result of just the stress, you know, obviously the intense, the intensity of the situation. Um, also, I love the fact that you never really, we never gather, especially in the movie, why he picked Ansel. How did these two end up together? Because, you know, the, the first thing we see them, yeah, he's constantly berating Ansel. Ansel ends up, like, you know, throwing up. And, and yeah, there is a, an affection that we kind of see a little bit over time. But it's, you know, it's one of the many mysteries of this movie. I say that, that early encounter, you know, where there's both from like when they're embracing on the ground, it does seem that Mac really wants Ansel there more than he's perhaps vocally admitting. And the first time I watched it um, after the killing, I thought it was just sort of like righteous anger, like, you know, you should have been there with me while I did this. But on subsequent viewings, there seems to be more desperation in the way that Mac is saying this. Like, maybe as if he was a little scared, like he didn't think he could do it without the kid. And there seems to be this sort of like shock afterwards. The more I watch it, the more nuanced that conversation is between the two of them and, you know, the dynamic between the two of them. Does he seem proud when Ansel finally kills someone? Is that the same impression that you guys get? A little bit. Kind of reminds me of when, you know, Henry gets busted for the first time in Goodfellas and they're like, oh, you broke your cherry. It doesn't seem as like, uh, like, uh, congratulations, Nancy. Now you're a man. I know what you mean, but that that was definitely an odd moment between the two of them. Because at that point, I almost feel like it's a little bit more desperate. I think there's a little bit more, or at least Mac is facing the fact that they might not get away with this. And he's cackling a heck of a lot more than he was at the start of the movie. And I think there's something to what you were saying, Heather, as far as the stress. Because that that scene in the, the field where the field's on fire... I mean, that's that's a major set piece in the book. It's a major set piece in the movie. And they fare better in the movie than they do in the book. They end up running through the fire in the book and basically burning off all of their hair. All of you know their, their clothes pretty much are burnt. And a lot of their skin is burned off. So they look like almost two space aliens walking around with this you know horrible disfigured look to them and then after that the sun really becomes their enemy because it is just beating down on them and thank goodness after they see fire they see rain and they get the rains coming in because otherwise they would probably die just of exposure because of the way that they are now so exposed with their flesh being burned my God. Yeah, I have, I didn't make it to that part of the book. Oh, my. You know, what I have read and, and what you're telling me, the book definitely, would you say it's more brutal? Like, you guys have both read it. Do you think the book's a whole is more brutal in terms of its uh, violence and worldview than the movie? Yes. It depends on how much you bring to it, I suppose. Because if you can picture the things that they're describing in your head, then it is 
more brutal than the movie. If you have to actually see the things on screen, then I imagine that the movie is more brutal. But to hear those descriptions, to read those descriptions of them taking 12 hours to crawl not even a mile across this large field and the way that their fingers get worn down, the nails crack and eventually break off, and their fingers are like sponges of just meat that kind of stuff really gets to you and the stuff about the burning flesh gets to you. And yeah, I think, and also there's more of it, you know, it takes a lot longer to read the book than to watch the movie. So you really kind of feel beat up by the end of reading that book and that they don't make it at the end of the book either is really brutal as well. And the book was a huge hit in England, correct? Like that was a mass, it was a really good, like a bestseller or my misunderstanding on that. <laughs> I can't necessarily speak to that though. I know that they picked up the rights to the book almost as soon as it was out. And there's only a two year turnaround with this uh, between when the book comes out in 68 and when the movie's coming out in 70. So they shot it literally the, the next year from when the book came out. So they turned this thing around really quickly. Right. It's it's always fascinating to me when something that bleak does really well on like a on a major level because you don't you don't always see that especially in I think more modern times. Yeah, the detail about the rope when they finally get the ropes off of their wrists in the book that was oof. <laughs> that was some beautifully written detail though. That's um Colin, do you happen to know if the book was a hit? I don't, but from what I gathered from some of the reviews, everybody seemed to have read it and knew about it and seemed to be more in favor of the movie and seemed to be a little upset with the liberties taken by the movie. And then there was that whole essay published in Lumiere where someone just tears the adaptation apart <laughs> and holds the uh, book to quite, quite high regards. I appreciate what they were trying to do with that article but they point out, right? At Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. The beginning, the whole idea of an adaptation versus an interpretation. And I would say that this is more of an interpretation than an adaptation. And if they want a straight up to adaptation, I don't know, maybe like listen to the audiobook or something. But yeah, this was really an interpretation. And we'll talk a little bit more about the, the script uh, in the second half of the show. But it's unusual to have your star, one of your two stars, adapt the thing that he's starring in. 
because then you can immediately start saying, oh, well, he gave himself more to do. He gave himself more things to say, and he slanted everything towards his character. And if there's any faults in this, then you can immediately point at the guy who is there on screen rather than some anonymous screenwriter who a lot of people, you know, if you said a screenwriter's name to them, they might not even recognize who that is. It's only nerds like us and like most of the listeners to this podcast where you can say a screenwriter's name and they know exactly what that person did and you know if there were changes to their work or any of these kind of things so it's it's not like people out on the street are you know exchanging uh, uh trading cards with screenwriters on there oh i got a wesley strick do you have a, a <laughs> <laughs> you got a ben hecht over there okay yeah i'll take that Despite this not being a project that Losey initiated himself, it feels very much, you know, very sympathetic with the rest of his, you know, the movies, his body of work. You know, from his first movie, The Lawless, to something like Strangers on the Prowl, he has a lot of sympathy for people that are persecuted, that are on the run. He has a lot of narratives about flight. Even his, you know, remake of M is very much about pursuit. There's a lot of elements of that, and these are the damned. You know, it still feels very much like a lousy film to me. A lot of the reviews called the dialogue Pinter-esque, and I was like, you know you're talking about a Joseph Losey film, right? I mean, this is like the king of Pinter adaptations. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's probably, even if Shaw isn't infusing that in there, this is a Losey film. So be prepared for Pinter-esque dialogue. This film, in hearing you guys discuss, it, it hits me like, I really need to brush up. I haven't really seen a whole lot of Joseph Losey. No, neither have I. I have a big gap in my filmography of Losey. Like, uh, before we started recording, I was uh, going to talk about uh, Boom and uh, Secret Ceremony. And I can't remember which one uh John Waters if not both but John Waters definitely picked one of these as his movie of choice at the Maryland Film Festival a few years ago and that is always like the best way to see some movies well one you're seeing it on the big screen and two you're seeing it with an intro and an outro by John Waters yes the Q&A with the uh audience tends to get a little too cutesy and kind of a pain in the ass but as long as they can wrap that up pretty quick it's pretty good um but yeah I would have loved to have seen whichever one if not both because you never know with him what he's going to choose um but yeah that i I would love to have experienced that yeah well in fact you know in pink flamingos um in the marbles house there is a movie poster for boom uh near the stairwell i never picked up on that before yeah there's that and uh i believe i a woman part two uh i've watched pink flamingos a lot I wanted to see it. Shame on me. Shame on me. Uh, well, hey, but you've seen a lot of Joseph Losey, so don't feel so bad. Yeah, you've got you've got one up on both of us, man. Losey <laughs> has a bunch of movies I still need to see. I couldn't track down some of the Pinter ones. I still need to see. I love Modesty Blaze. I think that's a really fun movie. I'd like to rewatch that. I want to see his version of M quite a bit, and I remember him getting. I don't know if it was just that he was blacklisted or what it was, but I know that 
he didn't get a lot of respect for quite a few years. And it might've been because of movies like secret ceremony or whatever, where, or like who's got the chutzpah to, you know, remake M, you know, it could have been something like that. It was the original producer of M that initiated the project. Who's going to see a German language version of this 1930, just about silent, but first movie in the sound era kind of thing when in 1951, you know, who's going to do that other than, again, nerds like us? It stands on its own. It's it's fabulous. It's its its own work and it's chilling to watch. And the again, it's so much to the movies just about paranoia. It's watching this network of people talking to each other, people being pulled in for questioning, um, people being, you know, accused of stuff that they're not guilty of at all. I mean, that's what most of the movie is. And it's just, you can really see Losey's, you know, sympathy for, you know, the persecuted in society. It's quite chilling. Just recently, it was Peter Laurie's birthday, and people are asking me if I'm ever going to do an episode on M. And Sam Deegan is putting out a book about M, so I'm hopefully going to get her on the uh, the show next year, and we can talk about M, because that is a fantastic film. And I'd love to, of course, watch this remake to, to see how that compares. But though I know both you and I, Cullen, have seen The Prowler on the big screen, yep. which is another Losi film, and that is fantastic. If you haven't seen that one, Heather, you, you really need to track that one down. And now there's like a, a finally a, a great restored version of that, thanks to Eddie Mueller and the uh, Film Noir Society. Oh, man, I'll have to check that out. And, I, and I've always wanted to see his version of M as well, because um, I'm a huge fan of the original. I think that's awesome that Sam's doing a book on that. She'll That'll be fantastic. She's great. And I actually, I have a copy of, of Modesty Blaze um, that I just got recently. I actually found it like at a local store, like it was used, but for like a song and a dance. And so I nabbed at it. So that's definitely on my pile. So it's, I actually have a copy of it. Very much worth singing and dancing for. <laughs> I, I hope you enjoy it. I, I remember it being a blast. That's one I've wanted to see for years. I remember seeing um, like a trailer of sorts for it years ago, and just like, oh my gosh, I must, I must see this. And so finding a copy in the wild, I was like, oh, okay, you're coming home with me. <laughs> so let's talk about the end of the film a little bit because that is where some purists really had it out with this movie. And it's it's an interesting ending. I have to say that this is a really crazy kind of ending because we don't know through the entire movie. We don't know that they have a goal in mind, and I don't think they have a goal. They they kind of just run across this fort, and they're they're debating amongst themselves as to who owns this. Is this one of theirs or one of ours? And finally, they decide it's one of ours. And they go up and they're like, we don't see the soldiers come out if memory serves. There's just all of these soldiers just standing there. And other than like some threatening moves, I don't think we see these guys move at all. Like one of them like brings up his gun and that's about it. Like these guys are just, they're almost like statues. And, you know, I keep bringing up them with these goggles on because we don't see a smile. We don't see a welcome home. We don't see a get down on the ground. You know, who are you? None of that. They're just quiet, like sentinels standing up on this mountain and not giving them anything. And it makes it so creepy. 
it's a very cold welcome. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the ending of, of the movie is just incredibly bleak, and I think that is a very philosophical choice on the part of um, Shaw and, and Losey, presumably, um, that differentiates from the book. You know, the Ansel character, in my view, he goes from, you know, escaping one sort of, you know, you know, whether it's a government, a foreign power, an enemy, into the hands of someone else who's basically going to imprison him. I don't think he's going to be getting any sort of freedom. I don't think he's going to be liberated. I think he's, you know, it's uh, back to being a prisoner. And I don't think he realizes it yet. Yeah, and I think that Mac does. Yep. Though... I don't know. He kind of hides it a little bit by then suddenly turning it turning it into now I'm going to have my last stand with this helicopter. Though the helicopter, like none of the other soldiers, help out at all. They just watch this. You know, again, completely silent. They just watch this whole thing happen. They don't tell him to stop. They don't shoot at the helicopter. Nothing, and it goes on for the longest time. Like the helicopter makes several passes at him to murder him and the way that we even have that that shadow of the helicopter that passes by him after he's done man that really got me i'm mystified that there are people i mean i guess you're always going to have critics regardless but like that you know because if this film had had a super happy ending then i would understand you know being like oh they really deviated from the source material but the ending yeah i mean as as you guys beautifully pointed out i mean ansel's fate is still probably not going to be the best i mean mac is dead and we're just kind of left like oh my god you know like we've been on this journey with these guys and have seen them go through all manners of of you know travails and and um stress and just just this you know there's there's such of like a great sick it's not like super tense the film is in the sense of like your like anxiety's going up but there's like a sick tension because hope feels like it doesn't exist yeah, for these guys you know totally and that's something that's very different from the book where ansel basically has mac kill him and then mac gets blown away by the helicopter and just you know the readings and there's this sort of you know blaze of I don't know if glory is the right word, but they're fighting to the end. Ansel's not going to be taken. You know, Mac is there for him. Mac goes out fighting. And there's no sort of fulfillment, no sort of sense of purpose to either of their endings in the movie. And to me, that's what makes it so much colder. Ansel just sort of goes into the arms of this sort of another cold regime. And then Robert Shaw's character he sort of doesn't want to go back to that. He can't win. He kind of gives up and it's blown away. But there's no, it doesn't have that same sort of like heroic feeling that the end of the book had. Do you think one could argue that the film's ending is actually even more depressing than the books? I think so. <laughs> in, in a certain ideological sense, I think it's both of their endings seem to me uh, a lot darker and colder i mean you could argue like well why did he turn around and run back to that helicopter he was right there and he could have gotten away and it was a really dumb move to do i can't see it being a happy ending either way whether he turns around and goes with those soldiers and they go up into their their base or whatever and we never see the helicopter again that's a depressing ending him turning around going out in this blaze of glory that's also a depressing ending. There's This is a no-win scenario. This is the Kobayashi Maru. 
discussing this movie with you guys tonight has actually made me appreciate it even more. Because I'm just thinking, how many movies can you think that are adapted from a pre-existing material, like a book or a play, that the ending is arguably even more depressing? <laughs> I mean, because we, we live in a world where, like, the Scarlet Letter is given a happy ending. Like, it, literally, somebody's putting a happy ending on a Thomas Hardy novel, which that in and of itself is uh, akin to painting, you know, a penis on the Mona Lisa or something. It makes no sense. Man, what a ballsy move. I'm sure the listeners are cineastic like ourselves. You know that a guy like Joseph Losey is definitely a bold filmmaker. But gosh, yeah, I mean, when you make a film like this, it's, it's this, like, you're leaving kind of, like, unsettled and you're never going to be settled. That's a, man, that's bold. I love it. I love it. I love this movie now. I went into it liking it when it's recording and just discussing it with you two. I'm like, it's, ah, oh, it's good. Everybody see it. There's movies that this movie reminds me of quite a bit. I mean, I've mentioned a couple of them already. One of them that I want to give a shout out to is The Man Who Would Be King. And I think it's this whole idea of these two British guys. Yes, I know that Sean Connery's Scottish, but these two British guys on this trek and then just the way that it's doomed. It's almost like uh, their servant guy at the end when he runs into the crowd with the sword and everything. That kind of reminds me of the way that Robert Shaw like runs down that mountain and is going to you know fight the helicopter and stuff. It's a no-win scenario for him either way. And the other one that it reminded me a lot of was another Steven Spielberg film other than Jaws, which was Duel. It really reminded me of something that we would see just, I think, the next year. This whole idea of man versus a faceless guy driving a machine and this whole, you know, the the way that the helicopter is personified or more anthropomorphized as this bird of prey or an insect that versus the you know the lion roar of the the truck but again dennis weaver makes it and spoilers but these guys don't so yeah it was that was a much more hopeful ending you know you've got hooper and and uh chief brody swimming back to amity at the end of jaws here nobody is going to have a good time of it you know to to your point five minutes after this movie ends I don't think that Malcolm McDowell is going to be in a very happy place. Have you guys ever seen The Plague Dogs? No. What the heck is that? That is an animated film, and I won't give away too much, but there were elements of this that also reminded me of The Plague Dogs, which was two dogs who are on the run, and there's even a helicopter at the end of that. And the ending isn't necessarily the same as this, but there's this whole idea of lost hope at the end of that movie. So it would be a really neat double feature to watch Figures in a Landscape and the Plague Dogs back to back. Is the animation style of the Plague Dogs uh, similar to the uh, film version of Watership Down? I think I have seen that. I think because that sounds a lot like a film I remember seeing when I was real little. And I remember being very depressed. <laughs> So, um, which, yeah, Watership Down had the same effect, yeah, which no shock. But, um, wow, it makes me want to revisit it and see that through adult eyes. I mean, how the Duel comparison is also very cool, which Duel's – I love Duel. Yeah, actually, just looking up the Play Dogs, uh, it was also written by Richard Adams, who wrote Watership Down, and it was also directed and produced by Martin Rosen, who also did Watership Down. So you've got the exact same – 
team coming to this. Okay. Yeah, I have seen that because there is, I, I saw both at such a young age where it's like, you know, you know how just when your kids certain films that they're similar kind of bleed a little oh. bit together. I guess I had some friends over on Saturday night and I made them watch this and then, uh, they, and they stayed through the whole thing. And then I said, you know, y'all can pick the second movie. And they said, no, no, you can pick the second one. So I picked uh, another Lozy, uh, These Are the Damned. And uh, after that, they made sure I did not pick the third movie. But, uh, they loved them both. Uh, I think they did. But we watched The Incredibles because we needed something much, much happier to end evening. Aww. But These Are the Damned also has a Joseph Lozy helicopter chase sequence. Unintended uh, helicopter double feature for Lozy. Well, Colin, I would let you pick the third feature. That sounds like an amazing double feature. And I, I sympathize because I, too, I uh, I once had my movie uh, picking privileges revoked years ago back in college because uh, my friends let me pick for the weekend. And I picked um, Desperate Living, speaking of John Waters, and Meet the Feebles. And uh, I guess it was too much for them. I don't know. Whatever. You can't please everybody. <laughs> that sounds like a party to me, man. Thank you. Well, see, Mike, that's what you get me. You know, this is like, this is, you know, you're like my brother from another mother. You get it. All right. We're going to take a break and be back after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it! With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast all about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run 
seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. All right, we are back, and we were talking about figures in a landscape. No interviews for this one. Um, I tried to get Peter Medak to come back on the show. He was on the Changeling episode a long time ago, and I didn't realize until just a couple weeks ago when I'm going through you know, the, the materials, uh, the, the IMDb listing, the Wikipedia, all this kind of stuff, and saw that he was actually slated to be the original director of this movie. So I reached out to him through email, and he's kind of busy right now with The Ghost of Peter Sellers, which is also another episode you can go back and listen to, which is going to have its premiere, I think, in Venice and at Telluride at the end of August. So Ghost of Peter Sellers sounds like a fascinating film. I uh, highly recommend that people check that out when it comes out. So I wanted to read to you what Menax said, which is interesting because this contradicts a lot of stuff that we've read about the movie. So I'll give his version first since he was there and he's alive and he can actually say these things. So he says the script was written by Stanley Mann from a brilliant book by Barry England. They were both great friends of mine, which is interesting that he was friends with both of these guys. I walked off the film as I refused to change the ending and allow the young kid soldier to survive at the end. As for me, the film was about death, which awaits us all. I wanted to make the book into a brilliant film. It should have been Joe Losey agreed to do the film with what Ever ending as long as CBS or NBC Films, can't remember which, and it was uh, CBS, I believe, finances film The Go-Between. We are talking about 1969. Read the original script, and you will see the big difference between good and bad. That was his memory of working on this film. And yeah, it was supposed to be Peter O'Toole as the main character, as the Mac character. I don't know if it was still Malcolm McDowell as the uh, Ansel character or not, it sounds like it might have been, they would end up, Medak and him would end up, uh, Peter O'Toole would end up working together on the ruling class. So uh, that's legit as well. But interestingly, 
other sources said that Medak was asked to leave <laughs> and that Losi was uh, brought in after that. Like I said, I kind of believe Medak over the other accounts that I've uh, read, but it's interesting that I've also read that Joseph Losi detested the book, which is interesting, and said that it had gratuitous violence. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of don't necessarily see that. It's it's almost unfair. This movie had a lot of stuff going against it once it finally did come out, because it sounds like it didn't come out until The Go-Between was out as well, because reading some of those reviews that you found, Colin, thank you so much for all your help with the research on this, or for doing God, like the lion's share of the research, almost every review I was reading for a while was having this and the go-between being reviewed at the exact same time. It sounded like they were playing at the same theaters at the exact same time, which was one was 70 and the other one was 72, I think. Thank you for contacting him about it. After he's like, oh, you should read the script. And I was like, oh, well, I've been looking for the script. Um, would you happen to be able to provide a copy? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll make you a copy as soon as I can. And then you can come over and pick it up. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not in Los Angeles, but, you know, so maybe at some point in the future, I will be posting on the Projection Booth uh, group over at Facebook, hey, can somebody in LA go over and pick up the script for me? (laughs) (laughs) You'd be my personal courier. Maybe I can get Kevin Bacon to go over on a, uh, a messenger bike or something. That would be pretty awesome. Oh, a little quick silver reference. I, I love it. And also, I too want to thank you, Colin, for you, your research that you brought to the table was amazing. To the point where I was almost intimidated. I'm like, oh my God, like this guy's bringing his A game. I'm glad y'all enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I have fun digging up old articles. Yeah, some of those were amazing. It's funny because I was just ripping on Judith Christ last week, actually, in the uh, Scarecrow episode. And there she was again, bashing on this film. (laughs) And I I have to say, like a lot of the criticism of this film, I was like, okay, I kind of get where you're coming from. And kind of like you, Heather, I was kind of fair to middling on this movie until we started to have this conversation. And like over the course of the last hour and a half, I've actually grown to appreciate this more having this conversation with you guys. Oh, same. It's such a cool movie. And I don't know, I don't know why it's, you know, obviously it didn't get a fair shake, but it seems unjustly to be underlooked at, especially given that you've got a name director, a name writer and star. And I mean, this was Malcolm McDowell's film. Uh, he did right before Clockwork Orange. So you kind of think it would be, and he, and he did it after doing, you know, Lindsay Anderson's If, which is an art, you know, masterpiece of a movie. Again, it was something that you dug up, Colin. It was uh, an interview with Losi about this movie. Apparently Kubrick contacted him and was like, would you recommend McDowell for this role? And Losi's like, well, first tell me what the role is about. And after he heard it, he's like, yeah, you definitely want this guy. That is so cool. I can't even imagine anybody else in a Clockwork Orange. I wish Robert Shaw and Jack Pounds had done a movie together. Oh, I would love to see the two of them. They both have this same, or not the same, but a similar sort of like intimidating intensity. Yeah, I, I think... They would have been really dynamic together. It would have been the weirdest movie, but I would have been into it. I just, I'm sad that that doesn't exist. That <laughs> you imagine yeah. what that set would be like? Oh my god! 
I wish they had given Shaw. I can't remember which Bond film he was in. From Russia with Love. Thank you. I wish they would have given him more latitude in that movie because, like, the way that the villains are treated now in the Bond films, where the villains are almost more featured than the then bond you know thinking of like even that piece of shit one with jonathan price it's like yeah i can go back and i can look at like oh jonathan price was in the movie he was the big the big bad he was the big villain and it's like yeah with robert shaw i'm like yeah which one was he in you know because he's kind of in there but he's not like that level of baddie and i wish that he because well frankly i think that any James Bond going up against Robert Shaw should be afraid. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Very true. Especially if he's wielding a snake. You know what scene I, we didn't talk about? Speaking of laughing. We didn't talk about the cave scene. I know that. We didn't talk about when they uh, drink the condensed milk. Yeah, I have a can of condensed milk here with me. And I drank about half of it before the show, and I haven't had any problems yet, but... Oh, Lord. I don't know what's going to happen. I got to say, I just love the scene when Ansel gets the runs, and then Jack Fallon starts laughing, and then he gets it himself, and they're just sitting there both cackling at each other, squatting on the ground, the grass in front of them so we can't see. I've never seen two people with diarrhea on screen at the same time before laughing. <laughs> well, especially in a in a film that you could call an art film. I mean, maybe like in well, I know in Harold and Kumar was it Harold and Kumar that the two girls that I mean, like a like a poo duel. I don't know. I'm sorry. Did they have one cup? Gross. No. No. <laughs> Ew. Who would have thought what Joseph Losey would inspire in us tonight? I feel like he's going to haunt us, possibly. <laughs> The scene in the cave with Malcolm McDowell, that's a little intense. He gets a little out there, but I think it's called for. I mean, there are moments where there are some really intense emotions happening on screen. And if you're not up for it, then you might be like, yeah, that's a little much. But I I was with the ride for this movie. I didn't necessarily sit there and go, yeah, you should have toned that down a little bit. Those scenes are totally earned. And I think it's really important for Shaw's character to, you know, whether it's let off some steam, express some stuff. Like, I, I think those are moments when you realize that he's not just this, you know, hard-boiled soldier killing machine. Uh, mm. There really is someone behind that. Yeah, and I think also all of that discussion of him and his wife, that really seems to... and Because that's a running theme. It's like we learn about his relationship with his wife as we go through there, I talked about, you know, him talking about her at the beginning when he, you know, right around the time that they're talking about crotch rot. And then there's uh, the scene in the cave where he is talking about his wife and talking about, you know, the, her face and her legs and all these things. And then he's also talking about her right at the end. And it's interesting that he says, like, I think he says that when he got out of the war, because it sounds like he was a soldier in World War II from the way that he describes it as far as the Americans came and then the Americans left and then I signed up. That sounds like World War II to me, but I'm not going to be 100% on that. And then he talks about how when he got out of the service, his wife knew. So it's almost like this kind of psychic connection that he seems to suggest that he and his wife have. And the way that he's talking about it, it almost seems like 
she might know exactly what's going on right now as well. I mean, it's an interesting thing to talk about. And I don't think, you know, the Shaw knew what he was trying to do with this, you know, being the adapter of this and bringing that story through the entire film. So I think that there's some weight to that story. What that weight is, I'm not a hundred percent yet, but there definitely is something going on with that tale. I thought that was something that was kind of brilliant, especially because it, it added such a hum- like another kind of human layer to Mac. And I never, I honestly, I didn't find, I thought the cave scene was really to me. That was actually kind of one of my favorite scenes in the movie because of the intensity, but also it just felt, it felt like they were both at their most vulnerable, like both Ansel and Mac, like at the same time. And, you know, I mean, if anybody wants to criticize and be like, oh, it's over the top. Well, I mean, these characters are in extreme situations. So I kind of admire when a film is like, okay, you have a character that's in an extreme situation. People are going to act extremely and act out extremely sometimes. If you had to be more of just like a standard drama where they're just having these quiet, you know, introspective discussions that, you know, don't really sound like true to life well that wouldn't be as powerful as a film as what we have here and at least in my opinion all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show では今見せる。ああ。面白いもん見せてるか。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ。ああ
That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Of course, we'll also be talking about all four of the Yojimbo films, the Dollars Trilogy, maybe a few more films, maybe even Last Man Standing. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Cullen and Heather. Cullen, what is the haps with you, Pocket Billiards? I am working with Blue Boxer on a uh, noir con journal online called Retreats from Oblivion. Uh, and we just launched that about a month ago. We're trying to do a story or two every week, some essays, some poems, hoping to have some uh, photo essays and other sorts of visual content coming up. But uh, yeah, putting a lot of work in that and super excited about it. That sounds awesome. I'm glad that Lou's doing stuff. Lou also says hello, Mike. Spoke with him this afternoon. Love Lou. Love the Lou. He's the best. And you're not too shabby yourself, Colin. Oh, you're pretty great too, Mike. And you, Heather. Oh, thank you. You you both you both are the bee's knees. And Heather, how's life in the clean world? It's dirty. Filthy. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it is great. I- uh, in addition to some assorted uh, writing sundries that I'm working on, uh, I recently got to appear on a co-host of yours, Mike's show, Morris, which um, Mike, I always mispronounce Morris's last name. Could you say it for me, please? I believe it's Berzinski. Me and him, we hit it off so well uh, on the uh, Charlie Varick episode, a projection booth that uh, Morris invited me to be on uh, his podcast, Love That Album. And we did an episode on the tubes. Particularly on the Tube's first album, though, we go into kind of the band's history. And that just went live uh, last week. And you can find that episode on lovethatalbum.podbean.com. And I highly uh, recommend everybody to check it out. And when is your encyclopedia coming out? The Bizarro Encyclopedia Film Volume 1. We're tidying up the uh, – we're getting some more images for the uh, video store portion of the book. And, uh, but we're coming to a close on that. Um, I, th- designing, making sure the visual end of things with the book is actually more consuming than the writing itself in some ways. <laughs> so, but, uh, but it's going to look amazing. We want to make sure it looks as beautiful as, um, as we feel like the, the work within will be. So, um, so it's going to be a treat. So hopefully we should have it out later this year of course i'll keep everybody up to date on my facebook i'm also on twitter look for me under mondo heather instagram and of course my website mondoheather.com well thank you again guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show and to patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as i'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world
gray, black, bat. Leave it, Mac, you've got no chance. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.